I got a call at home and he's, <laughs> hi, is Vince there? It's like, uh, who's this? Uh, it's Michael Jackson. I said, this is not Michael Jackson. No, it's Michael Jackson. I said, get the fuck out of here. This is not Michael Jackson, you know? Yes, it is, Vince. It's, it's really me. I was like, oh my God, Mike, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I didn't mean to say <laughs> fuck, man, you know? He played a little bit of Smooth Criminal for me. It wasn't complete yet. I think he had like, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? And maybe you've been hit by a smooth criminal. I said, do you want me to dance in, in the short film for you? And he said, no, man, I want you to I want you to listen to the music. I want, I want you to let the music tell you what it wants to be. And I want you to conceive it. And I want you to choreograph it. And I want you to direct it. Well, I didn't get to direct it because it became part of Moonwalker. And they brought in Colin right. Chilvers, a great guy who did the whole film. He was a DGA guy. But I did get to conceive it and cast it and choreograph it. and. Uh, yeah, so it was a it was a dream come true. This interview is iconic because I had the pleasure of sitting down with Vincent Patterson, who is the choreographer for Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal, so many other projects with Madonna, with MJ. He was in Beat It, he was in Thriller, he's made Broadway shows, he's done TV, he's done movies. I mean, this guy literally is an icon in the world of dance and movement and music and entertainment and as a matter of fact he has a new book out right now called icons and instincts and we sat down to talk about that about his life the overall journey of being a creative and and what it's like working with some of the biggest artists of all time and honestly he is one of the biggest artists of all time you might not know him he might not be as famous as the artist but what you consider some of the best parts of your favorite artists were created by this guy and he's just a beautiful person and I'm so happy to have the privilege to have this interview and I'm excited to share it with you so please check out the full conversation I had with Vincent Patterson. Vincent Patterson, how are you? I'm great, thanks Brazil, thanks for having me here. Excited to talk to you. How does it feel to write a book? Is this your first book? My first and probably only, you know, book. Um, yeah, Icons and Instincts. I. Uh, it came about in a crazy way. I was directing a, a short play for a friend of mine, uh, a writer, and uh, at the same time, uh, a documentary that had been done about me called The Man Behind the Throne was showing at Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And she went down to see it with a bunch of other friends and afterwards came up to me and said, you need to write a book, Vincent. And I said, I'm not really a writer, you know. Now look, first of all, I have to stop that for a moment because as choreographers, I'm a director as well, but as choreographers, we are writers. I mean, we get that one line in the script that says, and then they danced and then we write what happens. So right. in that sense, I've always been a writer. Um, but she said, have I ever written anything for real? And I said, well, I traveled so much working around the world and I usually did it by myself without an assistant. And it was pre-social media right. and I'm really close to friends and I, always include them in everything that I do. So I started writing these journals. And when I came back from the work, from the trip, I would collate them all together. Some of them are 250 pages and, uh, and then send them out to maybe 10 closest friends of mine. So I gave these to this woman, Amy Tofty, to read. And she said, you can write. I said, well, I'll do it if you do it with me, because right. this is a new venture for me. You're a screenwriter, a journalist, and a playwright, and I would feel more confident if you did it with me. And so she said, okay. So between the, um, the journals that I had written and then interviews that she had done with me over a series of weeks, uh, we began to put it together. And, 
And that's the result. That's amazing. And that's, I don't think you should be so hard on yourself because a lot of writers, most books say the, the author's name with somebody else. It takes some assistance to help structure the thoughts into yeah. the complete idea. But I mean, you have such a wealth of experience in the artistic community. I mean, you've done so many contributions to it. I mean, I'm very glad that you share this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it took a lifetime to experience, right? And yeah, and it's still going on, you know, and it was also hard because I have been fortunate enough to do so many incredible projects and I had to, uh, I mean, I could have written a thousand pager, you know, yeah. uh, but the publishers wanted a certain amount. So we kind of went through and weeded out what we thought were maybe the most visible, the most exciting, and also to span my career from uh, acting and, and, and directing at the beginning to being a dancer to being a choreographer to going back to directing again yeah and uh, talk a little bit about all of those elements of my life and career and we don't have to be pigeonholed to just one identity as a creator you can go from dancing to choreographing to directing and back right there's no limits and now a writer yeah. now an author as well well brazil honestly you know uh at the time that i was a dancer here it was not as easy as it is to move up the echelon mm. um it took a lot to become a choreographer from being a dancer it wasn't like now it's many people who teach a dance class become a choreographer because they put a combination of movements together um it was very different then uh, in the 80s throughout the 80s in the early 90s mid 90s um, and then to go from choreographer to director was really, really complicated. Luckily, I was able to bridge that gap, but, and it's a lot easier for people nowadays. And it should be because choreographers really, many choreographers, I can't say everybody, but many choreographers are really well-versed in the art of directing and should get the opportunity to do it. Yeah. And producing now that's happening a lot more, which really didn't happen when I was kind of in the business out here a lot. I think it's a natural talent, right? Because when choreographers are working with artists, there's such a level of trust because you're helping them move literally with body language. That is a directing. Absolutely. Well, a chapter in my book I dedicate to the art of choreography and what's going on with choreography. And thank God, finally, after 30 some years, we have begun to create the CG, the Choreographers Union. And hopefully this will remedy some of the injustices and inequalities that happen to choreographers who work side by side with everybody else on the set, yet have no union, no rights, no ownership, no pension, health and welfare, all of that. So- It's incredible to me how, that, how that's the case. It's, it, there's unions for everything else. Grips have unions. Everybody has unions. And, and, and you know, I was talking to other choreographers just about the mistreatment that they get on major jobs. I'm like, that's a major job. And you guys aren't even getting credited. Like, do a movie and you go on IMDb and they're labeled as like miscellaneous. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like, what? Absolutely. I've been very fortunate to have um, directors who appreciated me being there and wonderful agents, Julie McDonald, Tony Selznick for years who have fought and fought and fought for me to get credit, that's the only way that it happens. Um, and the truth is that most producers and directors don't even think about offering it to you, you know? Um, it's a bit of selfishness, ab absolutely, in terms of finances. Nobody wants to give up any of their little piece of the pie. Right. But for me, the biggest concern is, is credit because, you know, I've done, been fortunate enough, truly, and, I, and I'm, I'm humble and I'm so appreciative I've done so much work that has lasted the test of time. And the, the word iconic is thrown around everywhere nowadays, mm -hmm. but I have been fortunate enough to create some iconic work. Mm -hmm. And I deserve 
uh, as a choreographer to for people to know who I am and to know the work that I did because otherwise- At the bare minimum. <laughs> it's stolen all the time, you know? I mean, people steal my work, they put it in shows and, and, and all over Europe, all over the Asia, there are Michael Jackson impersonators who yeah. have full complete shows. I think they pay a small fee to the estate. I never see any of it. I never get any credit. It's all my work up there. Michael Peters as well, but predominantly mine. Yeah. Um, and that that's everywhere. Cirque du Soleil. I mean, one in, in Vegas, the same thing. You know, my work was taken. I don't get credit. I don't get money. I don't see a residual. After a while, it just gets you, you know. It's interesting I'm, that that phrases can be copyrighted, but not physical phrases. Well, we can copyright, but that doesn't really do much, to be honest with you, because mm. we don't own the work. So every work, almost every work that I know of, off-Broadway, I'm talking about West Coast predominantly, I'm right. talking about the electronic medium, I'm talking about the, the live non-theatrical productions, like uh, anything from pop tours to fashion shows, sure. you know. Um, it, it's, they don't think about credit for us. They don't think about ownership for us. Um, directors have ownership, producers have ownership. They might not have the same ownership on a film that the studio does, but they certainly have a piece of it. And anytime it shows, they get a residual, right. you know. Um, they're, they're above the line, so to speak, right? As the Yeah. Well, we are supposed to be above the line too, but we're above the line without any union representation, which means basically zilch. So, yeah. Wow. It's tough. It is. And, and it's such a major part of it. When you think of acts like Michael Jackson, so many stars, when the kids imitate them at home, what do they imitate? The dance moves. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you look at one thing, for instance, I mean, on the front of my book, I, I have the image of Michael Jackson in the lean. Right. You know, is probably the most iconic, well-recognized image of Michael Jackson in the world. You see it everywhere. It's copied by people putting all kinds of devices on their feet to do it on stage. Um, it's written about in books. I've seen sculptures, life-size sculptures of Michael Jackson in this pose all over China. I mean, yeah. do I see a penny? Is my name on there anywhere? No. Did it come out of my brain? Yes. Did it come out of anybody else's brain? No. So, you know. The, the lean was your idea? Oh yeah. Oh wow. yeah. All of that, you know, Mike called me up and asked me to come down to a recording studio. I had just done, uh, danced on other projects with him, Thriller and Beat It. I got a call at home and um, that was kind of a funny situation because uh, it was, uh, he's, <laughs> hi, is Vince there? It's like, uh, who's this? Uh, it's Michael Jackson. I said, this is not Michael Jackson. No, it's Michael Jackson. I said, get the fuck out of here. This is not Michael Jackson, you know? Yes, it is, Vince. It's, it's really me. I was like, oh my God, Mike, I'm so sorry. I apologize. I didn't mean to say fuck, man, you know? Anyway, he asked me if I would come down to a recording studio in Hollywood, and I did. And uh, he played a little bit of Smooth Criminal for me. It wasn't complete yet. Just uh, the music was there. And I think he had like, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? And maybe you've been hit by a smooth criminal. Could you tell it was gonna be a hit record right there? Well, you know, I had just <clears throat> come off a of Beat It and Thriller, so. Those are pretty high yeah, bars, you know, yeah. I kind of had a feeling that whatever happened next was gonna be as as tremendous. And I knew Michael wanted to keep topping things, so. Right. Uh, but I thought he wanted me to dance, Brazil. I thought he wanted me to dance. And 
when I walked out the door, he gave me a little cassette and I said, do you want me to dance in, in the short film for you? And he said, no, man, I want you to, I want you to listen to the music. I want, I want you to let the music tell you what it wants to be. And I want you to conceive it. And I want you to choreograph it. And I want you to direct it. Well, I didn't get to direct it because it became part of Moonwalker and they brought in Colin right. Chilvers, a great guy who did the whole film. He was a DGA guy, but I did get to conceive it and cast it and choreograph it. And, uh, yeah, so it was a it was a dream come true. But wow, um, was that your first major one as a choreographer? Um, yeah, my first, yeah, as far as music video or something like that. Yeah, on on that scale. Wow. Um, after Beat It, I got a lot of calls from people who wanted me to come in and stage them or choreograph them. Uh, it seemed like uh, every rock star in the world wanted to now move a little bit, you know. So. I worked with crazy people like Van Halen and David Lee Roth and uh, a great black band named LTD, uh, Jeffrey Osborne. And um, so, yeah, so I, I started to do some choreography just from having danced and beat it. Right. You know? um, and but, when you guys did the lean on Smooth Criminal, is there has it been revealed how you guys did, did it? Is it a secret? In my book. In the, okay. You think I'm telling you here? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody thinks it's the shoes because what happened was eventually when Mike wanted to do it on stage, uh, we had to find a way for him to do it different than we had differently than we had done it in, in the short film. Right. Uh, so he patented these kind of... Uh, uh, little slide hooks that went, he, he could slide the heels of his shoes into them and lean over to a certain degree. Gotcha. Um, and so everybody thinks it was all done with shoes, but that's not how it was done for the short film, for Smooth Criminal, no, it was, we did a little differently. I'm a theater guy, so I pulled a lot of theater techniques out of the bag when I can, you know. I and when that. I can't, I mean, I'm gonna, I use CGI, like the, <laughs> a coin flip at the beginning when he walks in the room. Right. I knew that would be cool, so I just had him flip a coin and that was CGI magic, but the it's other so was- so perfect, it. the way he just goes. Here we go. <laughs> iconic. That's truly, you're right. The word iconic is overused nowadays. That was truly iconic. What was your first time meeting Michael Jackson? The first time I met Michael Jackson, um, I was working with Michael Peters as an assistant choreographer, along with a woman who's no longer with us, unfortunately, named Frances Morgan, amazing dancer. And um, Michael Peters had just been asked to choreograph Beat It. Uh, he had done Dream Girls on Broadway, and Bob Giraldi is a New York director, and he had seen Dream Girls and loved it. And uh, when Michael Jackson asked Bob Giraldi to direct Beat It, uh, Bob called Michael Peters, and Michael Peters asked me and Francis to be his assistants on the project. So we worked at Debbie Reynolds for a day, I think, about a day. It wasn't a long piece of choreography in Beat It. And Michael Jackson came in, he was like totally quiet. Nobody came in with him. He walked through Debbie, the, the halls of Debbie Reynolds dance studios. I don't know if people even knew who he was. He didn't have a mask on, you know, but and he was just walking through. He was very quiet and very shy. And he came into the room and Michael Peters showed him and, and Francis and I danced what, what Michael Peters had created. And Michael Jackson was very, I like it. I like it. You know, show me. But he didn't have much to say. He didn't contribute much on that on Beat It at all. Um, but he was so sweet and Michael Peters and Francis and I liked to laugh a lot. So we would always vacillate between being extremely focused, extremely intense and focused to just being absolutely crazy and laughing and laughing. And, 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 and Mike, Michael Jackson, I called him Mike, 
um, he would really love that. And it made him very comfortable immediately. So beautiful. we got along well. That was my first meeting with him. Yeah. It's interesting the the, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word of how he's so sh shy and quiet, but then his performance is so. He's like a nice Jekyll and Hyde in a way, uh, or a nice schizophrenic or whatever. Yeah, he was always uh, very humble, very shy. Even when he laughed, he would be almost Japanese, <laughs> covering his mouth, you know, so kind. And then that music would turn on. And um, I mean, it would, I, I have to wear hearing aids now from the time, and I'm not saying it was that I mind, yeah. but um, when you worked with Michael Jackson, the music was so loud, the floors were vibrating, the walls were vibrating, you were afraid the windows were gonna break, you know? Yeah. And 17 years on and off kind of took its toll. I so, bet. <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, when that music came on Brazil, he was, it was like nothing, nothing I'd ever experienced before or, or yeah. since, you know, just, uh, it, it, I don't know, it, it, it was, well, you quoted me, uh, I say it's like sticking your finger into the electric socket of creativity and yes and then dancing next to him you actually felt this look i got chills right now telling you about this but um you felt this energy just coming off his body and and hitting you and kind of pulling you along for the ride it was ah it was absolutely incredible i don't even know how to describe it other than that it can was only a imagine because you feel the vibe in the room just like when you walk into a room and two people have just argued you feel the tension oh, yeah. you're like oh something feels off in here when somebody's vibrating creatively it rubs off well the thing was though you didn't really feel it when you came into the room because when you came into the room he was this he was this michael jackson you yeah. know it was only when the music turned on that he became the other michael jackson that we know and love you know oh, and that's the power of music because oh we can all tap into that absolutely right? where does creativity come from in your opinion well, I think it comes from another source. Um, I'm not a religious person, I'm a spiritual person, but sure. um, I, I don't know exactly where it comes. For me, the reason I named my book Icons and Instincts is because I feel that so many of the decisions that I've made have been based on that little voice inside my head that tells me, and heart, that tells me this is the right path to take, this is the right way to go. Um, I cite this example because people say, well, I don't know what that little voice is. And I said, oh, yes, you do know what that little voice is. We all have it. We just have to decide how to use it. And I'll give you an example. We have a glass of water and we're walking through the house and we set it down on the corner of the table. And a little voice says, don't put that glass there because you know what, you're gonna knock it over. Hi, baby. Don't put that glass there, you're gonna knock it over. And you ignore that instinctual voice and mm -hmm. you walk away and you turn around and you knock the glass over, you right. know. And it was because you didn't listen to that voice that said, don't put that glass there, you know? Well, I try to listen to that voice with almost everything I do and especially everything that concerns the arts, you know? Um, and how you differentiate between that voice and the voice of fear saying, maybe you're not good enough or you shouldn't do this or? Uh, it's a very different sound. It's a very different truth that comes through somehow. I don't know how to explain it, but Fear is fear and fear is always there, you know, and I, because of fear, I've become like a prep freak and a homework freak because I never like to walk on a set and feel that if I have to totally change everything at the last minute that I'm unprepared. Right. So I live with that fear. Um, 
but I try to take it and make it positive and make it constructive and, 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 and talk to myself, okay, how do I overcome this fear? I overcome it by doing my homework, by knowing the song inside out if I'm choreographing, knowing the text inside out if I'm directing, um, exploring everything I can about the history of the piece or, or the characters I'm directing, if that's the situation. Um, Smooth Criminal, for instance, I sat with Michael and we looked at a lot of old black and white films of the period, you know. Um, you immerse yourself in... Absolutely, yeah. but I always do. It's just, and that's part of my insecurities and fear, you know, is that I don't know enough. I might not be good enough. So let me do all this homework so that if I walk into a situation and I'm, the director says, if I'm choreographing, the director says, you know what, this doesn't work for the producers. Can you make the whole thing different and you got 10 minutes to do it? You know what, I'm prepared, you know, I'm not wondering if I can do it. I'm not asking an assistant for some steps, you know, I feel yeah. like I've done my homework and I'm ready to, yeah, change it. Everything's changed, you can do whatever you want, change it and make it better maybe, you know, but that's, that's the instinct part. The fear part is what gets me to do the homework, but the instinct is what gets me to trust my own decisions and my own artistic um, opinions, I guess, yeah. Because it has to feel right and click right inside of you. Well, if it doesn't, I mean, you know that by doing yeah. what you do, you know, not only this, but in your other yeah. work, you know, you know if it's right or not, you know, if it's wrong, you have a choice. You can walk away or you can push through. Maybe you can do something even better than what you had planned originally, you know. What does success mean to you? Well, I think success for me has always been having the opportunity to continue to create, you mm. know. I, yeah, I like that. With, with the book is the first time I ever hired a publicist. Um, like I mentioned, there was a documentary done about me called The Man Behind the Throne because that's kind of the way I've always looked at myself. I never, yeah. I never cared to be one of those people out in the front. Um, I saw it so closely with the megastars I worked with. I saw their freedom being taken away. I saw them being criticized over every word that came out of their mouth, every move they made, every opinion they had. And I decided I wanted to live my own life as well. So success has not been about fame because I'm certainly not famous, right. but um, those people who know me and know my work think of me as successful. And I think of myself as successful. Being a gay man, I don't have children and I feel like the works that I've created are my babies, you know? Another reason why I don't want them stolen or, or, or named by somebody else as their own, you know? It's beautifully said. Yeah, because success, it depends, it's, it's, it's achieving what you want. Absolutely. And not everybody wants the same thing. Right. What have you seen as the price of fame? I know you touched on it a little bit right now, but with the artists that you've worked with. Um, I've, I've seen that. I've seen lack of... It's okay, buddy. Lack of independence. I've seen lack of independence, lack of freedom. Um, you know, I recently, it's interesting, you know, with this book, I, uh, there's been a lot about it on social media. Mm -hmm. And I had this one guy write, a hater, you know, write, uh, don't buy this book. Uh, he's just using Michael Jackson to sell his book. Uh, I was on the field at the Super Bowl and he was horrible to me. He was mean and, 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 and so rude to me. Well, first of all, I don't remember this guy. Second yeah. of all, I am far from being a rude person. I'm one of the nicest people I know, seriously. And I, I'm not bragging, it's just my nature, you know? Yeah. I, I try to create a set where people feel comfortable and and open and, and safe, you know? But I imagine what happened. 
all those years ago at the <laughs> Super Bowl was there was a point where we allowed all these people to run onto the state onto the field. This guy probably tried to get too close to the stage or too close to Michael Jackson and the band and the dancers. And I probably said, hey, man, you got to move back. You got to step behind that line. Well, you know, to some of these crazy fanatics, I was all of a sudden a monster. But uh, it's up to their interpretation. But what it did was it really hurt me deeply, deeply. Now, I've gotten nothing but sweet remarks and, and, and beautiful compliments of, about this book and, and people sharing their own life stories with me. I get one negative, mean comment and my week is ruined, you know, because I think, oh my God, was I really a bad guy? Was I, did I really do that, you know? And those kind of things really disturb me, you know? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because as humans, it's like we're trained to look for the danger. Yeah more than the potential prize, right? <laughs> yeah, it, can, it can be a thousand good comments to one person says something and we're just like, no. Yeah. But it means that you care. It means that you value being a good person and creating, uh, the good person is even like a weird phrase. You value creating a good environment for people when you're creating, you know? And I think it's also up to people's interpretations. Like you didn't choose to be mean, he interpreted it right. as that. And that could be based on how he was feeling that day. Absolutely. He could have just got into a fight with his girlfriend or whatever. And then Absolutely. and then it led to that where he didn't eat and he was cranky. You know me, if I don't eat my chicken sandwich, I start <laughs> thinking everybody's mean. <laughs> no, I think he probably yeah. just wanted to get, you know, close to Michael Jackson. And I was one of those people that said, no, man, you can't. You got to keep your distance, you know, so we're filming live, you know, who knows what could have happened? You know, you don't know these people. You don't know who they are. They could have, I don't know, a weapon on them. For all you I know, know, you know, so see what happened know. with John Lennon, right? You don't know. Absolutely. But yeah. but not just the workplace. It's also the people who I choose to work with. I, I really only want to work with nice people. And I try to suss that out at, in the audition. You know, I come in early. I watch what people do in the room. I see if they are focused, if they really are putting their attention to doing a great audition or if they're there to... Uh, fraternize with their friends and you know it kills me when you see a lot of people and they're warming up if it's a choreography audition and dance audition and somebody comes in hey hi 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 and they just saw each other last night you know but they disturb the energy in the room they take away all the concentration of the other people who are really trying to be focused and instantly i know i don't want this person in my room i don't want this person to be part of my party you know, if this is the lack of respect they have for their fellow dancers, what are they going to do in a crisis? You know, what are they going to do if I get called out and I need the room to be calm and keep on working? I don't need this kind of interruption. I don't want that kind of energy around. You know, I want people who yes. respect each other and love what they do. And it's easy to see in an audition who does and who doesn't. And I think that's overlooked when people are aiming to have a goal. Of, I want to be this person. It's not just a skill of can you dance well. Mm-hmm. It's assumed that everybody at a certain level can basically hit the steps. Right. It's all these other qualities, how they mesh with the group, how they can they read the room. Yeah. Can they tell that right now is the time to be quiet? Yeah. That's an important skill. Yeah, absolutely it is. And can they read me as much as I can read them? You yeah. know. I mean, most people come in a little desperate. Everybody needs a gig, mm-hmm. you know, or wants a gig. But you should be able to take the time, you know look around the room, get to recognize it, make it your own, feel comfortable there, give the best impression you can to the director or choreographer, not only of your technical skills, but of who you are as a human being, who you are as an artist and how you intend to fit into the picture here, you know, not just with your 
your hip hop skills or your ballet skills or your jazz skills or whatever it is, but who are you as a human being? Where is that part of your artist that you bring to the audition? Because I think that affects the final product. Absolutely. It's not just can you hit the steps. If you can hit the steps, but if you throw off everybody's concentration, it throws off the entire crew. Yeah. Right? It, it, there's a one plus one is more than two when you're working creatively <laughs> together. You, you know, know? That. Yeah. So every vibe matters, right? Like we saw that that happened with uh, the Christian Bale accident uh, on some set where like a gaffer was moving lights while he was in the middle of a scene and he just exploded. Now, whether or not he should have yelled, it's another thing, but everything matters when you're creating art. The entire vibe, artists are very sensitive. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Zip for walk. Just an example, you know, but it, it's, yeah. We're all sensitive. Yeah. Human beings are sensitive, yeah. you know. Um, unfortunately, too many artists think that because they are artists, that their sensitivity is more important than anybody else's. Well, that's a great point. Uh, well, it's not true. It's... Uh, everybody's equal, you know, it's creating for me, no matter what position I'm in is really kind of about creating a socialistic society where we're all even, you know, I've been fortunate enough to learn from some great directors, Lars von Trier, Mike Nichols, uh, Alan, not Alan Parker so much, but um, Sidney Pollack, you know, people who they, you know that they're the director, you know that they're the one in charge just by their presence and their nature. They don't have to be loud. They don't have to be inconsiderate. They don't have to put their ego in front of themselves to right. command the room, you know? And these are the people that I've learned from. Um, I'm only in the position of director because that's the role I've been cast in, you know? But if you weren't there as the actor or the dancer, or the lighting designer or the costume sewing person in the little room or somebody who handles the props, then the whole thing would not be complete. Right, know? it's a unit, it's a collaboration. Absolutely. It's a, yeah, it's a community. Well, I've had, it's interesting, Europe is a lot more of a very specific hierarchy than America and- How uh, so? And I've done several musicals and plays in Europe now directing and I'm the guy who goes and hangs out with the people in the costume department, or I go and hang out with the guys who are building the sets. Hey, give me a hammer, I'll help you out, you know? Um, and they're all amazed, but two things happen. First of all, they become part of my team. And second of all, I get to know them and I can communicate with them better. And second of all, when you just spend two minutes with somebody and you introduce yourself and you ask them their name, They'll do anything you want because you've been kind, you know? Sorry, I get emotional. Uh, no, that's, it's, but it's important. Like It's so important. And in Europe, I've been, producers have come up to me and said, uh, Vincent, you know, we don't really work this way in Europe, you know, in the theater. There's a hierarchy. The directors are here and they don't really go and talk to the staff, you know? I said, well, you know, first of all, it's me. Second of all, I'm an American, you know, <laughs> what can I say? This is the way I am. I'm, you know, always been a big mouth. I always say what I feel. I'm a very honest man. I did a, I, I directed and choreographed a Evita in Vienna, a wow. huge theater, beautiful theater, the Ronecker. And on opening night, I had told the, the uh, artistic director of that theater and the, the artistic director of the three theaters that were all connected that mm -hmm. I was going to invite anybody on the craft team, costumes, lighting, sets, any of those people to come out on the curtain call 
after the cast had come and after the principal art uh, players had come, the writer, the, the uh, composer, stuff like that, people who were there, and the heads of the departments, I wanted then all the worker bees to come out. Yes. They said no. And I said, well, their excuse was two. They said, first of all, they'll be very uncomfortable to do that. And second of all, nobody will know who they are. And I said, you know, this is my opening night and I'm going to invite them and they don't ever have to come back on the stage again, but you know what, they're gonna come out if they want to. So I invited them out on the third call and maybe 30 people came out and all dressed in just their work clothes and the audience gave them a 10 minutes, I'm gonna get emotional again, 10 minutes standing ovation, That's you know? It's beautiful. Yeah, it's just about caring, you know? We're all working together. It's Wow. It's incredible that that feels like it's the exception to the rule. Oh. That should be the rule. It should be the rule. Yeah. Because without them and without the rigging grips, yeah. making sure that the lights don't fall, you exactly. wouldn't have the actors. Exactly. <laughs> if you exactly, start seeing Lico's and lights just falling on everybody, then, then you don't have a show. And they're only doing it to make the project better. You know, I mean, they're not doing it to sabotage anybody. Jeez, yeah. they're, they're doing it to make make everybody look better, whether it's the actor or the director or the costume designer or whomever, you know, they're just, everybody's working for the best end result. So everybody needs to be appreciated. I completely agree. You know, we just saw our first musical, uh, Broadway musical a few weeks ago, Chicago uh, in New York. Uh, never seen any musicals. I've seen tons of ballets. I grew up around ballets, seen a bunch of concerts, but just never gotten to go to one. And I saw it and it was just such a, a perfection of production mm -hmm. right and and i appreciate I, I see the lighting cues i see everything and even how they made such use of the stage right like the, the 80 percent of the stage was the music uh orchestra uh -huh. or whatever, right and then the front 20 was the actors and the dancers and the singers and they did so much of that an entire movie happened there and it took so much preparation and timing that it's interesting that you say that that the crew didn't come up afterwards it was just the cast and it's like so much of the magic of what I experienced watching that Broadway was also the production staff. Oh. It's not just the people singing. Absolutely. They were incredible singers and dancers. But if it wasn't for the lighting guy hitting that at the perfect you, time, we wouldn't have a show. You got it. It creates the mood. It creates the ambiance. Absolutely. Wow. That's so interesting that that's not the way it's normally done. Yeah. Well, you get a lot of directors who um, are egomaniacs, you know, and... Um, and you get a lot of actors and, and singers who are egomaniacs. I mean, all of these things, you, contracts of that they make you sign if you're working with them, you know, do not look at the star in the eyes, you know, do not say. <laughs> Wait, you've actually seen contracts the, that say oh, that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I said, yeah. don't I, look at the star in the eyes. I was just speaking with someone who, who was acting in a, in a very important scene with somebody, Tom Cruise, actually. And she had to sign a contract that said, you will not. Talk, you will not call Mr. Cruz by his first name. You will not look him in the eyes except when the camera's rolling. Seriously, this was in her contract. Now, why? Why? You know, why? I mean, they're all on set together. It's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. That's so... <laughs> I know. That's so... Preposterous. <laughs> I mean, I, okay. So if I were to play devil's advocate, if somebody was preparing for like a crying scene and they're, up, they're trying to get their emotions up and somebody comes up to them to talk about some random bullshit, okay, you're interrupting their process. But as a general rule to not ever look them in the eye, that just sounds crazy. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me, especially when you're trying to create a unity, 
you know, with uh, with all the players, seems to sabotage the, the your end result. But anyway, that's the way it is in the business with many, many people. And I've been in it with greats and with difficulty, you know. Uh, like I said, the, the ones I mentioned, uh, Lars von Trier, Mike Nichols, oh my God, what a what an angel that man was. Um, he brought me onto the birdcage and said, listen, Vincent, I look at the script. Any place you think that movement or dance or anything can happen in any way, just let me know. We'll make it happen. So he brought me in from the very first table read with all of those incredible actors sitting around the table and kept me there till the end of the film. And I cast it, uh, I cast all the dancers who were gonna be the, the drags in the club. And I actually brought in my own musical director to do the music for in the club. And he was just absolutely cr incredible. He wanted input. He wanted my thoughts on any part of the script that I could give him. And that was generosity. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. That's the way it should be. The people that are, not to harp too much on it, but the people that are like the egomaniacs, so to speak, do you think they naturally are that way or they think they need to be that way to demand um, people to behave? Well, I'm, I'm honestly not sure because those people that are egomaniacs, I don't tend to get close to. So I don't really know what they're like in real life. I don't mm. really know the reason that they became this way or they feel that this is the way they need to act to... Uh, present a sense of authority on a set, perhaps. Um, I only get close to the ones who are sweet and nice. I mean, why yeah. would I want to waste my time with the others? You know, it's like, I'm not out to, I'm not crusading to change the world. Right. I, I'm just trying to get a good project happen and do, it's a good, do a good result, you know? Because so. I've heard people say the same thing about like, uh, like Steve Jobs. I've heard people say that he was very um, assertive and sometimes mean when he was creating. And then a lot of tech people think that, well, in order to be as successful as Steve Jobs, I must also be mean to my, it's like, no, if he was, then that might've been his process. Uh, That's not a prerequisite for the success. Absolutely. Yeah. It, what's that old saying? You get more uh, flies with uh, honey than vinegar? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to be mean to be assertive. You don't have to be mean to be authoritative, assertive, or to know what, what the hell you're doing. Cause you, you can know. calmly make a decision. Listen, yeah. people will listen to you. If you want to get a point across, more people will listen to you if you speak softly than they will if you're screaming. If you're screaming, they turn you out. Mm. If you speak softly, they usually move a little closer because they want to hear exactly what you're saying. That's a great point. It's a true point. What makes a great leader in your perspective? A great what? Leader. Um, I, think, I think someone who is in the position of being a leader because they've had the experience, first of all, that they have the ability to be a leader and that they care about those people that are in their charge, uh, whether it's a, an artistic project or your babysitting, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah. all, it's all the same thing, basically, you know? being a good guy and trying to make everybody happy at the same time getting the work done. The work that, you, I don't mean happy and, and, and ignore the work that's being done. I right. mean create a happy environment. Right. Um, yeah. Because hard, hard work doesn't need to be emotionally painful. No, it doesn't at all. You know, it might require focus. It might require some sacrifice of time, stretching yourself physically, but yeah. it doesn't have to be brutal. Like you don't have to 
I, I feel the same way about traffic. Like I hear people complaining about traffic. Well, if you're in it, find a way to enjoy it. Call my mom while I'm on there. <laughs> Listen to a podcast. There, there's a million ways to make traffic fun. <laughs> I guess. I don't know if I could agree with you on that one. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I'm there, well, I have a playlist More of- power my... to you, Brazil. <laughs> Listen, Vincent, I have a playlist of my favorite comedians. And if I'm stuck oh, in great. traffic, I'll just- Put that on. I love and sometimes that. I'll secretly wish the traffic goes a little longer <laughs> so I can finish that bit. <laughs> if we arrive early, I'm like, shit, <laughs> they're not done with the <laughs> sketch yet. <laughs> I love that. Have you, you ever done that when you pull up to a place and you're listening to a song and you don't get out of the car till the song's oh, over? Yeah. Oh, yeah. of course. Oh, yeah. Especially when you're singing along, you know? Yes. <laughs> I can't have somebody talking to me when my favorite music is playing. Cause I'm thinking about the lyrics. It's like, I'm going to pay attention to one or the other. Exactly. <laughs> so if I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to exactly. turn it down. <laughs> I'm with you, man. Or we're going to listen to it all the way through. <laughs> I know. I also hate it when you say, oh, I want to, I want to share this song with you. I want to play this song with you. And you start to play the song and then people start to, and then they start to talk. I'm uh, like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Can you wait till after the song's done? Yeah. I really want you to hear the song, you know, yeah. and you're in the song and they're like, oh yeah, you know what? I heard about this artist and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, shh, quiet, you know? <laughs> I'm that way about movies too. Whenever I yeah, see scenes, if I'm watching, if I'm watching a show with her, and she'll look down on her phone, I'm like, "You missed it." <laughs> no, I'm rewinding it because you didn't see the look that they gave me. Did you see the look? Oh God, we got to go back. <laughs> She's like, "No, I saw it. I heard it." I'm like, "But you didn't see it because I know the details that are in a movie, right? Like, or in any any piece of production, right? Because when you make something, you know how many how much work we put into like a look, a stare. Absolutely, right." And I'm the kind of person that I'll watch the same movie many times. And every time I watch it, I catch something new. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular film that you watch a bunch that's like your favorite film, something you tune into? Do you watch movies a lot? Oh, I watch a lot of movies, but I don't have a favorite movie. No. Okay. But I will tell you about, I'm going to take something that you said and, and riff on it for a minute. But um, one of the joys, I started as an uh, as an actor and a, and a stage director. Okay. So um, with not musicals, uh, just legit, just straight drama or comedies or um, classic pieces or avant-garde theater, um, but nothing with music involved or dance involved. What I like to do, and if people go back and look at Smooth Criminal, I think they can kind of see. I I have the dancers do a lot of acting exercises before before shooting and a lot before rehearsals or during rehearsals. I have them write a biography. I have them name themselves if they're not named in a script. Who are you? Why are you here in this club? Do you know other people in the club? How do you know them? Do you come here often? What's your favorite drink when you come here? <laughs> what favorite song do you like the band to play? Um, and then they have to fill these in for themselves. On Smooth Criminal, you know, we had the set, and you could walk onto the set, but I didn't let them do that. There was that green door. So every time we began a rehearsal, they had to go in the green door, all the dancers, call themselves and each other by their biographical names, not their dancer names. And when they left or on a break or whatever, they had to come out the green door and then they could be themselves again. And if what I'm proud of is if you look at Smooth Criminal, there are so many close-ups and every single close-up, you can't believe that it's just a dancer because there's so much going on in their minds of the biography, the stories that they have all filled <clears throat> They're in. They're serving the greater story. 
they're not just a, a person, not just a body. Yeah, they're not just a mannequin that moves. You know, they have character, they have a reason to be there, they have a history of why they're there and what this situation is about. It informs the intention. It informs everything. It, it basically informs the audience because what we get when we watch good acting is not that we necessarily um, uh, relive the experience that the actor is going through, but a good actor, what it does is when they are clear with their intention and they are bringing up stuff that's personal to them, it relates to us. And we imagine ourselves something, we, we imagine a situation ourselves that relates to that situation. Mm. And that's when acting is great. It's kind of like, I know what you mean, you know what I mean when I, if I start to tell you a story about somebody and you know that person or something, or a little bit about it, or you have a similar uh, situation, you're waiting for me to finish so that you can come in and tell your yes. story about yes. the same situation. It taps in. Yeah, so that's what good acting is to me. And I think that when you look at amazing actors, like Glenn Close to me is consummate. Yeah. You know, you, you look at close-ups of her and you see the mechanics of what are going on in her head. And, and I feel that about Smooth Criminal, you know, that any of these close-ups, you look and you don't see a dancer, you see somebody who's thinking about something and that's what makes a difference. That's so interesting. I, I tend to do that when I go somewhere hmm. to remind myself of what my intention is. Like when I've gone to like a party or a social event, because sometimes I'm introvert, sometimes I'm extrovert, it, it depends on the day. Absolutely. I don't identify as either, they're, they're flow states, you know? But there's times where I, I've seen myself pull up to a party and I have anxiety, I'm like, I have anxiety. So I sit in the car for a second and I just tune in and I set an intention, like, what am I here to do? I'm here to connect, I'm here to celebrate the moment, I'm here to, to put a smile in 10 people's faces, whatever it is, I, I set that and then I go in and it just makes the experience so much better. I think that exercise that you gave, it's, it's not just good for acting, it's good for life. To have a moment of preparation and setting the intention, because if we don't set it, then we're just reacting to whatever happened that day. Exactly. And if we were watching the news all day and getting pissed off that, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And this politician, that politician, Ur! and then you go to the party <laughs> and yeah. then, then your vibe is completely thrown off by whatever happened. And maybe that, that's what you want, but then it's not in your control. Yeah. And is that the you that you want to present to the world? You know, that's the other part of it. You know, who do you want the world to know is Brazil or yeah. Vincent? We have control over that. You know, we do. It's in our hands. Were your parents supportive of your career? How was it early on? My family life was very difficult and um, and pretty violent and abusive. And um, my parents were very young. Um, I was the oldest of five kids and my mom had me, she was a little under 19, and five kids by the time she was 26. Wow. And we were very poor and um, we lived, um, in a small neighborhood close to the oil refineries uh, in the uh, south of Philadelphia along the Delaware River. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very tough. Um, it was very tough. And um, we all lived in a one tiny little bathroom house and <laughs> you know, four boys and a girl, youngest right. being a girl. It was, it was not easy. My dad was very violent. We were beat up all the time. And um, Do you think that contributed to you being as nice as you are now, experiencing that pain early on? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know, honestly. Um, I had 
great people around me too. My grandparents were great. My, my mom's grandmom was a hero to me. And, you know, I would kind of go down there a lot and hang out and she would like, just let me be who I wanted to be and let me create these, uh, you know, crazy <laughs> shows for my nephews and nieces and stuff like that. And, um, it, 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 yeah, you know, but it, it was tough growing up. Um, all I, all I knew was that I needed to get out of there, you know, and I didn't know how because we were poor. So I did really, really well in school. I studied my ass off to get high marks because I knew that if I wanted to go out, go to college, which was my dream, and only three people from my entire graduating class of 275 people went on to college. Wow. Um, I knew I had to work hard, you know, and I did. I, I, I studied hard. I did a lot of extracurricular stuff and, uh, you know, the debate team and the yearbook and all those kind of things. I ran cross country for a while. I was in a bad accident and broke my foot in five places and I had to stop. But, you know, I, and I did. I, I, I did really well and I got high marks and I was able to get into college with a lot of financial aid. And, um, and that kind of made things livable for me. And that was my sole intention was to get out of where I lived and try to find another life for myself, you know. And do you mean that specifically get out of the, the family situation or also the, the city that you were in? Both. Or both. Both. Yeah. I mean, there was no culture where I grew up. Uh, if you stayed, you basically uh, worked at the oil refineries um, or the Scott Paper Company or um, you worked in a funeral home or an auto garage or at the local Dairy Queen or the food market, you know? I mean, there wasn't a hell of a lot there. Um, there certainly wasn't a place to study dance or, uh, and the theater that I did was, you know, after school stuff, but occasionally we had an interesting piece. We, we did um, a few, a few, pieces that everybody knew, but most of them were like hip hippie hooray and, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> stupid shit like that. But, um, but I loved it. It, and it, it gave me an opportunity to escape, to step into characters that were not me in lives that were not mine. And, um, and it gave me the hope to continue and to keep on moving forward. How did you have the vision to then make the career that you have now? Did, did you at some point hit you like, wow, I'm going to make it an entertainment. Was that a clear thought or was it gradual just? Uh, well, a little bit of both. Um, I thought, I, I, I applied to a school called Dickinson College, which is a great school in central Pennsylvania. And the reason I did is because they were attached to a law school, Dickinson Law School. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna become a trial lawyer because first of all, I love theater, I can be dramatic, and I can make a lot of money. And these are my two goals, right? So when I went to Dickinson, of course, it was liberal arts to start, but I was gonna do all of these courses that led me to law. And what did I do? I walked into the theater and I met the man who ran the theater, David Brubaker, such a sweetheart, he and his wife, Marge, and they were so kind. And I auditioned for freshman plays. And after I auditioned for freshman plays and I got a part, he pulled me into the office and he said, you're good. You're a really good actor. He said, we don't usually have freshmen in any of the major plays, but I'd like you to read for something else. So I wound up being in all of the plays from the very beginning. Well, forget law, you know, <laughs> I, I, I had to go into the theater. The problem was at Dickinson, they didn't have a major in theater. Even though they had a theater. 
they had a theater and you could take a lot of different courses in theater. You could take lighting design, you could take set design. Um, you and could, where was this college? In uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Okay, so this right was still in the, in the state. Center. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and so after my sophomore year, I thought, I gotta go to a school where I can really major in theater. This is what I wanna do. And I auditioned for NYU and I got in, but I didn't get any scholarships. So I spoke to David Brubaker, head of the theater at Dickinson, and he said, why don't you come back up to Carlisle? Let's, you and me sit together and let's put together an interdisciplinary major for theater. So we did, and we spoke to the professors who were teaching like uh, German drama and had only taught it in German. Would they teach it in English? Yeah, Spanish drama, French drama, uh, things like, courses like this. So I have- so you guys put together the major. Yeah, wow. an interdisciplinary <laughs> major. So I have a degree, and many people do have this degree now from Dickinson, and it still continues, dramatic arts and theater literature. So not only did I have to direct plays, design sets, design costumes, um, work with the cast, uh, do all that stuff that you need to do as, as learning the technical aspects of theater, but I also had to take German drama and French drama and Italian drama, so that I got this great background uh, and American modern drama. So I got a great background of, of a plethora of, of, of dramatical, dramatic types. And, um, and it was great. And I, and I left college and I felt ready to take on the world. You know? That's amazing. What I love about that is that you didn't give up. You made it happen. You collaborated, you asked, you communicated, you guys created a major. Right, I think that mindset is so key because a lot of times in life we'll we'll have a goal and there'll be resistance, and I think a lot of people don't understand that the resistance is part of it. It's how you break through that resistance that is part of your greatness. That is part of the, the like when you're lifting weights, you can only you have to lift weights just to stay the same if you want to actually build. And who am I to say I'm still <laughs> super skinny? But theoretically, you know, if you want to build the weights, you have to do more than yeah. you think you can. You know, and in your situation, when you could, didn't have the funding for the college, you didn't give up. You made it happen. You were resourceful when you didn't have the resources. You created the resources. That's, that's really well, I awesome. I think, you know, perhaps growing up under such difficult circumstances gave me some kind of inner strength that I knew what bad was. I didn't want bad anymore. I needed good. Mm. And <laughs> so that's all I chased was good. You know? <laughs> wow, that's so, it's so interesting that through so much trauma that can only imagine you, you experienced, you came out on the other side, creating beautiful works in a beautiful state. You chose not to repeat the trauma, not to pass it on. Nobody's perfect, but theoretically your, your philosophy is to create a, a harmonious set. Exactly. That's really great. Well, when I wrote the book, you know, when you read biographies or autobiographies of people, usually at the, all their background, their family life and all of that is in the first chapter and that's it. You never touch it again. But Amy and I decided that we didn't want to write the book that way because as an artist, so much of what I grew up with and how I grew up, my influences, uh, family influences, influences of my, by my mom, um, these carried me and inspired me in a lot of projects. So we, we saved those moments to talk about them when we were, when I was 
talking about another project I had done. I'll give an example. I directed a, an opera for Los Angeles Opera in Berlin, and I set it in the 50s. And the reason I set it in the 50s, even though it was originally designed to be created, to be set in the 1800s at some point, okay. late 1700s, um, was because even though we were so poor, my mom was so beautiful and she loved to look beautiful. So she would go to these mill remnant stores, which is where the, 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 left, the remnants of, of, of uh, bolts of cloth would be sold for very cheap. And she would be able to afford these cheap bolts of cloth. And she and my grandma would make her these beautiful clothings. And I just remember her being so beautiful and stunning, you know. So when I created Manon, this opera for this beautiful, young, successful and passionate opera singer, Anya Netrebko, I wanted to set it in the 50s because there was this whole sense of style from my mom that I knew this woman, Anya Netrebko, would be beautiful in those costumes. And she was, and it was very successful. So I wanted to save those kind of stories till I was writing about that project, you know? And there's other things, oh, excuse me, yeah. other things throughout that I write about, but I'm happy with the way the book came and me adding these personal moments throughout my creative endeavors as well, because they do live in me and they do come through me somehow. And, and, and things I remember or things I don't even realize are coming through until after they're up there and I go, oh my God, that was from that one thing that happened back then. And yeah, that's where that came from, you know? So I like that. Yeah. I like that approach too, of not just squeezing the family at the beginning yeah. and then saying afterwards, everything happened. <laughs> Cause so much of what we do is based on, on our experience. It stays with right? us. Right? Like, it stays with us. Yeah. Learning that in therapy. Yep. <laughs> so much of it is based on oh, yeah. the way we grew up energetically, oh, yeah. philosophically. What do you want people to get from this book? Um, well, I wrote the book for different reasons. Um, I kind of first wrote it because so many people have always asked me questions about the different projects that I've created. And I thought, okay, I want to kind of let them know about my process a little bit and how I, how I work with superstars and, um, and sometimes less than superstars, but yeah. um, this is my process. And I wanted to share that for um, artists, younger artists coming into the business. I also wanted to um, illustrate my sense of doing my homework and being prepared. Uh, as we mentioned before, I think this is really important and I talk about that a lot in the book. Um, and I wanted artists to know that somebody in my position who's become so successful um, didn't always have a magic carpet ride to get here, you know, that we all struggle. Um, no matter how good we are, no matter who we are and who we come from and who gets us in the door, uh, it all winds up being on us. And it can be difficult, it's not always easy, but as I mentioned before, if you are true to your heart and you are good to people and you try to create a positive environment and you're an honest person, I think that those lessons are lessons that need to be shared. And um, because I have been successful and people listen now, I wanted mm -hmm. to share some of those stories. So maybe people will learn a bit from my good thing, good things that I did and, and some of the mistakes I made as well, you know. What was one of your biggest learning lessons? Well, there's been many, but any that you care to share? Um, well, I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned throughout is when to walk away 
and when to say no. Mm. I've rarely ever done it. Um, I've had a few encounters where people hired me and then what they want from me or the way they perceive me is so far from who I am mm. that I feel that the work is going to be restricted and not I'm not able to do my best work. Um, I'll give you a case in point. Uh, Alan Parker on the movie Evita. Now, I'd already had a history of working with Madonna. I'd done a lot of projects with Madonna, very successful projects with Madonna. So I've never been Madonna's best friend, but because we worked a lot together, we have a rapport. We, right. and we know how to work together. We've been very intimate situations, creative situations together. So I already had this relationship going into the project. Now, Madonna didn't ask me to do the movie Evita. Alan Parker asked me to do the movie Evita. But Alan Parker had a monster overinflated ego from what I had heard that about his past films, that it was always an Alan Parker film. He liked being the king of the movie, no matter what it was about or who was in it. Well, in a Madonna film, I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's going to be Madonna and not Alan Parker. Yeah. And he couldn't really deal with that very well. Um, and part of it, he took out on me until one time I had this conversation with him, what had happened was he cast someone who was supposed to dance with Madonna. He never brought me in for casting. He never saw that the people could dance. He just cast people because he thought they looked interesting, you know? Well, he had cast a man that I worked with for about six hours to try to teach him some very simple tango steps. The guy left so frustrated and so upset. I went to Alan and I said, Alan, this guy can't even move. He can't dance. I said, he, 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 you just can't do this to Madonna. He, I, I mean, how are you going to do this? He's never going to be able to repeat a step. You're never going to be able to, to, to take that shot again and again. And he said, oh, Vincent, you're just trying to make this into a big dance film. And it's not a big dance film. I said, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to tell you what happened in rehearsal. And he said, well, the reason I picked this guy was because he was in, I can't even remember, dancing or something like right. that. Well, it turned out that he was not in dancing. He was the stage manager. You know, he wasn't even a performer on the, in the project and it wasn't dancing, but it was something like that, a big yeah. dance project. So I basically told him, I said, Alan, look, you know, I know that you think that I'm Madonna's best friend and I know that you feel a little slighted by that or something, but you're the one who hired me. I'm, I'm here to work to make your vision be fulfilled, not Madonna's vision. She's also here to make your vision be fulfilled. Right. That's why we're here, you know? And I said, but if you don't want me, if you don't think you can work with me, I don't need to be here. You know, we still have two weeks before principal photography and I'm more than welcome, willing to go home and you can bring somebody else. There's a lot of other people that can do this job, you know? And he walked around a little bit and then he came over and he said, I want to apologize. I'm, I'm wrong and I'm glad that you told me this and I appreciate you being here and um, things will get better from now on. And they did. But it took that, you know, it took me putting it on the line, you know. I mean, I didn't want to leave that film. I, I, I had been offered that film by two previous directors who almost did it. Um, so it was destined for me to do that film. This was the third time it was coming up and the third time I was asked. So, But you had boundaries and, and you... Absolutely. And you were willing to walk away Well, on principle. Aren't you? Yeah. I mean... Well, I think early in the career, I was less willing to when I was struggling for money. Sure. But there was definitely a couple of situations of me working with some famous rappers where not them, but their entourage yeah. were being very mean to me. 
And then I just I just had to leave because it, I thought it was going to get physically bad, uh -huh. you know? And I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. But I think early on, I think we're pressured to take situations that don't seem the most ethical. Yeah. Right? Just because we need the gig. Yeah. Right? And that's when we have to decide, okay, what's more important right now? That's absolutely true. Um, and harking back again to the chapter on choreographers, you know, choreographers are really often just so abused on a set. Um, I've been speaking to people lately who, uh, I don't do that much TV and stuff anymore, but who they're on a set, it's a big gig. They're not even given a chair to sit down, you know? And I mentioned, why don't you have your agent put that in the contract? Well, I'm nervous about doing that, even though I've worked for this company for maybe three years, because I'm afraid if I start acting like a diva, they might not hire me anymore. This is preposterous. Come on. Yeah. Asking for a chair is not diva. Please. That's not saying don't look me in the eye. Please. There's a big difference. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly, Brazil. So that's like know? the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. Where we talked earlier about people thinking that they have to grandstand to be authoritative yeah. and then people being afraid of grandstanding and then being walked all over. Yeah. So it's, you have to find that fine line. Like what is a reasonable request yeah. on set? Every situation is different. You have to hopefully be wise enough and sensitive enough to kind of feel it out and suss it out. And and if you're in there in a role of uh, you know any kind of leadership, like a choreographer or director, you know to me it's uh, it's your job to take care of those people that have come into work with you. And that's what I always try to do: take care of the dancers if I'm choreographing, take care of everybody if I'm directing. And if I can derive from what you're saying, what I'm hearing is the context that somebody comes from when they're making those decisions, right? Like, I wonder what context does somebody have to be in to make those bad decisions? And I would assume that it would be a scarcity mindset. I assume that it would be a fearful mindset of I'm not good enough. They won't listen to me unless I'm mean, or I must only worry about myself and not the people under me that I'm leading, right? Or whatever it is. I think these are all mind frames that can lead to those bad decisions. So then if I reverse engineer it, what would lead to the good decisions, mm. right? Is focusing on how you can contribute. Yeah. And, and there's a fine line between contributing and being like a people pleaser, you know? Oh, yeah. It, it's, 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 you know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it's hard to define it, but there is a difference, right? Oh, there's a huge difference. I'm not yeah. talking about kissing ass. Yeah. You know? And that's something I've never done because in any position that I've been in, um, especially coming into a situation with these mega celebrities, you know, their asses are kissed by everybody that surrounds them, you know? <laughs> yeah. I always figure that the last thing they need from me is one more pucker, you know? So uh, I, I, I think, okay, you're paying me a lot of money. You, you're, I'm here because you obviously know my work and, and in some way respect it or enjoy it. So I'm gonna give you what I give you. And part of that is honesty, you know? And I, I'm your mirror. You know, nobody else is going to tell you what you're doing wrong, but that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm the mirror and I'm going to tell you now, ultimately it's your decision. If you want to follow what I ask you to do, or you want to make, you make up your own steps or whatever it might be. But I'm, I believe you're hiring me for that. You know, you, you need me. You don't need me, need me to give you another kiss on the ass. You've got enough of those people. Yeah. You need me here because I'm going to make you be better than you ever thought you could be. That's a great point. That's a great point. I, I've gone back and forth on that. When I first came to LA and I and I worked with my first celebrity, um, they asked me what I thought of their videos. And I just gave them a very honest critique. I said, well, I think this could be better. That could be better. This could be better because I had nothing to lose. And then we shot a video the next day and it did really well. Then we went on tour. But then after a while, I started feeling a sense of scarcity, like I might lose that opportunity. And then I was just doing whatever they were telling me. 
and then I became less artistically fulfilled. Like I was just, yes, whatever you need, I'll do it. And then I wasn't happy with it. And then at the same time, I started getting beef with the, the entourage that was like talking shit to me. And, I, and then I left. And then it took a while for me to get back to that point of realizing that it's not that I know everything, but the, why would they hire me and not that other person if we both know how to film? Well, it's because I have a particular taste. It might not be the right taste for this project, but if you're hiring me, I'm going to bring my taste to it. That's right. My opinions, well, the thing that, that, that tickles me about it, right? Like what, what gets me giddy about this shot? And just appreciating that that is the value yeah. and being okay with not being on the project if we can't tap into that, right? And learning to know that that is my contribution is the, the things that make me me. Like, the, like you realizing that the, the situation with your mom, mm. how that led further down your career, right? Yeah. For you to appreciate that. I think so many of the things that make us different are what makes us special. Oh, yeah. Right? And the unique perspective. Absolutely. You, you know, when we're starting out, some of those philosophies that we live by, we have to set aside a little bit, you <laughs> yeah. know, because we do have to eat. We do have to pay for our rent, you know, and we need mm -hmm. to build a reel, you know, and we need mm -hmm. to build a reputation. And the only way we can do that is by putting ourselves into situations that might not always be the most... Um, uh, positive or the most professional sometimes, but it's something else we can add to our resume. We get the check and we can pay our rent, you know? Um, and I'm saying, you know, a lot, <laughs> I just heard myself <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, we, it's about growth and, 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 but I still think that within that context, we have to find our own boundaries, you know, and, and where we can, allow ourselves some flexibility to maybe open up our own standards a little bit to get something that we need to move us into a position where eventually we will be in a position where we can get our thoughts, our method of working, our kindness or whatever that might be into a position of authority. But we yes. can't do that. We have to work our way up to that. And it's not always easy, but we know when we have to walk away and I hope most people know when they have to walk away and when it gets abusive and nobody needs to be abused and nobody should be an abused in this, in this business. It's just not worth it. I agree. It's not worth it. What do you want to have happen for the choreography and dance world? What are your wishes that transforms the industry? Well, I really believe in, in, in this guild, the, the CG, the choreographers guild. And I really hope that the major choreographers in this town will come on board and and stand by it and 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 these rules are necessary we choreographers need to be respected choreographers need to have pension health and welfare their credits they're a piece of the a piece of the pie like every other person that they're working with um as you said above the line we are above the line creators and you know we need equality you know it's like you know blacks have had have have had their time and uh, uh, gays have had their time and women have had their time. Straight men have not had their time, I have right. to say. And choreographers have not had their time. So those are yeah. the two categories that I feel need to now be given a moment to what do straight guys need in this world? What do straight men need? We never hear their needs. We hear about gays and blacks and women and I've hardly ever heard a voice from a straight man, you know, what they're lacking. What does the society need to give them a better chance of being the, the best that they can be as a straight man in this world. And I feel the same for choreographers. They're constantly abused. They're constantly taken advantage of. And it's only the good ones, the wise people who, who know that this is an injustice and will stand by us. So my dream is that it starts with the choreographic community, all the, 
all the major players here, you know, the Kenny Ortegas and the Nappy Tabs and the Brian Friedmans and the, who else? Everybody else out there. Marguerite Derricks, you know, some of them have come on board, some have not come on board yet. Is the guild up and running? It has started. Yeah. Like there's a, a, a Kat Burns is our president. We have four vice presidents. We have a secretary treasurer. We have an executive director and we have close to 40 people now on the executive board. Wow. Unbelievable group of people from myself, Kenny Ortega to uh, Derek Huff yeah. to Twitch. I yeah. mean, there's a really nice broad selection of people and they've come on board now to be part of the executive board. So. You know, this has just happened in the last couple months. And, and how does that work? So when you guys have, like, when I guild, because we hear about the guilds now that have existed for a long time, yeah. like the Director's Guild or Producer's Guild. So when a guild is starting off, is it a matter of everybody who's big enough to work on major jobs holding the line and yeah. saying, we won't do this unless you meet our standards? That's is a, that kind of what's needed? That is exactly what might be needed. Unless, unless we've reached a point where producers and directors can look at this list of choreographers who have bonded together as one voice and say, wow, the, the, without these people, I don't know what we would have done or what we do in this business whenever we need movement or dance in a film or a commercial or whatever it might be. Hopefully, we wouldn't have to declare any kind of moratorium on work. But if that becomes the case, then yeah, that's what has to happen. You know, we need to be recognized by the other unions, by uh, uh, everybody, by IATSE, by, you know, all the, uh, the agents, the, the unions that work in this business and have them stand behind us and, uh, and put up some kind of united front. And we only can do this when we get enough of the big choreographers who work to, to, to stand by and us and say, yes, I'm part of that. There will always be those uh, in, in business, they're called scabs who cross the picket line. <laughs> yeah. um, I hate to <laughs> say that about potential choreographers, but we hope that this won't happen. This has been one of the reasons that we've never been able to gain, gain ground before. That's kind of the problem, right? If a, if a director is saying, oh, well, if you don't want to do the film, I'll hire this other choreographer that won't ask for the same thing. And so we'll it's do getting, it for $25. Right. Yeah. So it's a matter of really getting a sense of unity. Yeah. And hopefully producers will realize that hiring the $25 choreographer who's done, you know, three hip hop steps in a hip hop class right. um, is a little bit different than hiring someone who's had expertise and um, done this for a period of time successfully, that they know that what they're paying for is what they're going to get, you know, and often they don't because it's a lack of education. Uh, many people don't even know what choreographers do. They think they make up some dance steps. They don't realize that choreographers can be casting directors, first of all. Nine times out of ten, we're asked to do the casting or control the casting, whether it's a commercial or a film or whatever. Movement coach? Yeah, movement coaches too. Um, we, we, we do that. We, as I said before, we write the piece. We're, yeah. we're given some idea. I mean, when you do a commercial, you're not even given, sometimes you're just given storyboards if you're given storyboards of stick figures, you right. know, and you've got to translate those little stick figures into amazing movement that in two seconds tells a story, you know, or five seconds, or when you've got a 15 or 30 second commercial, you got to make every second count, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's all, it's all part of that same thing. And I, I just hope this happens. You know, I'm not really choreographing much anymore. And, um, I'm grateful for all the 
time and opportunities that I had. And and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see so much dance happening now. I mean, with MTV, really, it began as the renaissance of dance again, and it's just exploded. And to see so much dance everywhere is so fulfilling. It's it very accepting so now. Like uh, when uh, I was a kid in school, like middle school, high school, if you were a dancer, you were still kind of the weird one. Mm. Nowadays, the dancers are the new cool kids. Absolutely. I think that's a great step in the right direction. Absolutely. You know, is. societally. Do you think the the lack of having the guilt is there like direct opposition or just that it hasn't happened yet? Like, is there somebody out there saying, we don't want you guys to have a guild and, or, or is it just like, they're just worried about themselves and you guys figure it out. Is it more of that vibe? It's something in between. Okay. I think there's a lot of people in positions of power um, who feel that way, who might not necessarily want to express those opinions aloud, but when it gets into uh, sitting around the table, those feelings come out. Um, yeah, I, you know, the, the beautiful thing is that some people now, um, Kenny, Mandy Moore, Marguerite, uh, people who are continuing to work as choreographers in this business have also worked themselves into positions of producers, mm. which is fantastic because producers have a lot more clout. I have a lot more say about what goes on. And a producer has a, you know, a, more power to be able to make these changes occur and it's i'm 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 absolutely ecstatic to see this happening with a lot of choreographers who are moving into these very successful and powerful positions and hopefully those are the ones and those people that i mentioned mandy moore is also part of the executive board so yeah you know these are the kind of people that we need to come on board and to really just step in front because anybody who sees a list this list of these people goes Oh yeah, I know them. Yeah, <laughs> I, from Dancing with the Stars to right, la la, whatever you know. So, yeah. what message do you have for the next generation of dancers, and that might be aspiring choreographers that are watching this right now? What would you like them to? Ah, uh, well, my most important complaint mm -hmm. is, could we have some dancing where people could get out of second position? I mean, I am so sick and tired of every single reel that I get when I'm looking for a choreographer, everybody is in the same formation in second position. And it's all about moving your head, moving your arms and moving your upper torso. Maybe you shift a little bit to the side, but they never get out of second position. Get a little bit more creative, you know, do, do a jump once in a while, do a turn once in a while, do something else. I don't care about kicks, but you know, yeah. let's do, let's have a little variety. Let's have a little bit of, of innovation, a little bit of, I'm sure you, you must be able to come up with something more creative than that. I mean, my God, we were doing those same lines back in the eighties, you know, and it, and that has not evolved. And, and that's something that I would like to see change. Really. I'm very happy that dance is having a, 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 a huge explosion and I love seeing, and I love seeing it everywhere. Dance makes people happy, whether you're doing it or you're watching it. And the more happiness we can bring in the world, the better. So I'm all for it. But I just, in terms of being a criti critical about it, I just wish that the newer choreographers would step beyond second position and try to find a little bit more movement. The body's capable of impossible things. Um, explore them, please. You know, it's almost like there's there's a, a they're limiting themselves. Oh yeah, by just repeating what they think works because it's going viral on social media or what have you. There's more to do. Yeah. And it's easier. It's a lot easier. 
You know, it's a little lazy to me, but uh, that's, that's my <laughs> Keep opinion. Keep it real, Vincent. <laughs> Man, we've been rocking good. It's been an hour and a half already. Look at really? that. Really? Oh, my God. We're flying. I, mm, okay. Okay, so as we wrap this up, if if you could leave the world with one billboard with a, one message, what would it say? While you trust your instincts... Be sure you're being kind to others and yourself. Yes. That's beautiful. Especially the final part of that. Because I've struggled with that sometimes where I'm so focused on trying to be nice for other people that my self-talk for a while was very negative. Even when somebody said, good job, I'm like, ah, no. It's like, it, was, it was always so learning to be nice to yourself as well as others. Well, it's really important because if you can't, then it means that you're not giving yourself, you're not allowing yourself to live to your full potential, you know, because if you're not being kind to yourself, you're not, you're not listening to that inner voice, you know, and, uh, and we all need to listen to that inner voice. Vincent, thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. I learned a lot. I'm very grateful we got to have this me energy too. exchange. Look, you moved me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. So guys, it, Icons and Instincts, I'll put a link to it on the description of the video for you to buy it. I, I'm so glad that you wrote this. I'm Thank you for all the contributions you made to the world with your art. Um, your kids you. have brought so much joy. Yeah. to so many people and i hope that one day you'll be properly credited and appreciated for it oh listen i, I feel <laughs> but, the love trust me i feel the love you know it's it, it's just yeah the abuse is not fair you know the the stealing of people's work you know that's not fair for anybody it's not just me it's it's not just my work i've seen it happen all across the board and yeah that's what we have to stop we really have to stop that i'm very honored to have you here thank you man. this was I'm beautiful thank you